begin with prayer. Father God, I thank you for your amazing grace. I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you for the joy of the Lord and the privilege of serving and knowing you today. May you guide us and direct us as we know and learn from you more and more through your word, through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to his disciples said in Mark, Matthew uh, 16, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What does it mean to be significant and to say that our lives have counted for something? You see people striving for significance, fame, something that will make them noticed. But are we relying on people's opinions to, uh, of us to prove, to prove our significance, our importance, our identity, and our worth? If I'm really good at something and people like what I do, then does that make me important, significant, and famous? Maybe. In the early chapters of Genesis, we're introduced to Cain, who killed his brother Abel. Cain is cursed and sent east of Eden. He has a son. His son built a city. City builders became people who believed they lived eternally because their names were in the building or the building of the city. And see, I have lived forever because that city lasts forever. forever. Because their identity was rooted in the city that they built. The city lasts forever. Therefore, their name lasts forever. The line of Cain became the people who pursued significance in what they did and the power that they exercised. If you go to Genesis 11, after the flood, we read this. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. You catch that? Let us make for ourselves a name. Let us make ourselves a name outside of God's will. Let's usurp God's will and make a name for ourselves. The people wanted to build a very tall tower, and, a point, and the point of building that tower was so that if God ever flooded the earth, they'd say, can't get us. We built a tower too, long, too big. And there's, there's a joke in Genesis 11 you've got to catch. God says, let us go down and see this thing, because we can't see it from heaven. Okay. <laughs> We have to go to the earth to check this thing out. <laughs> There's a little tiny building they're making. <clears throat> we will become gods. We'll prevent God from unleashing his wrath. That's what their thinking was. In Genesis chapter 6, uh, just 6 verse 4, it says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, Men of renown. These mighty men called Nephilim. Nephilim, you know what Nephilim means? Fallen ones. A lot of times they say, oh, they're fallen angels. You know what really they are? They're losers. <laughs> because every time they show up, they're about to go down, if you know what I mean. And these mighty men called Nephilim, they're about to be defeated, and they were drowned in the flood. They appear again in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 13. It says, There also we saw the Nephilim, the son of An sons of Anak, are part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, uh, and we were in, in their sight. 
the Nephilim. The losers showed up because they were about to be defeated. The Israelite people saw themselves as tiny compared to these giants, these very powerful Nephilim. But again, God chose them that, they, that these Nephilim would fail. They would lose. The power of man and all that it comes with is a setup. Humanity tries to gain power, but all it is is it's a setup to fall. When Egypt enslaved the people of Israel, he for, Egypt forced them into hard labor and long days. Many died from the weight of the burden of slavery. Many uh, were crippled and everyone was neglected. Egypt had power, strength, might. They, there was no way they could be defeated, but they fell. Why? Because God says you will fall. God rescued his people and set them free from the hand of tyranny. You see the power and might of Goliath in uh, 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 1 Samuel 17. And and Goliath was immense, intimidating. He appeared invincible, but one stone killed him. One. You see the might and power of the nations of Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Rome, and Greece. They all appear invincible. They They don't exist anymore. They're crushed and their power's lost. The might and power of humanity is a setup to fail because it is a grasp for power and a desire to become gods. In the human, in the human heart is a search for significance, identity, fame, and fortune. There's a hole in every human heart. But what can truly fill it? There's a restlessness in, of reaching, straining, and hoping to gain something, but we'll never find it through our human reasoning and logic because our minds are tainted with sin. The search will always elude us. There's an ancient story called the Epic of Gilgamesh. And the Gilgamesh tries to attain immortal and eternal life, but fails to do so. When he gets to the tree of life, he finds the tree of life, picks the fruit, falls asleep before he eats it. The snake comes in, eats the fruit, and eats the tree. (laughs) He realizes he cannot find eternal life, but you know what? He walks back to the city he built, and he goes, I have attained it through the city he built. Even Adam and his wife Eve reached for power. Even though they were given everything by God, they says, we want more. It's a setup to fail. The drive that compels us within our human heart is one that reaches for power to gain something that we think will bring us meaning and purpose. The Lord's disciples typically argued about who's the greatest. Well, Peter, I'm sure, thought, well, I'm certainly better than Thomas. I mean, I don't doubt. Yeah, but you denied him. You know, you could just imagine that. And when they were asking this question of who's the greatest, they were really asking about the issue of meaning and purpose. Who had significance and identity? Jesus said to them in Matthew 18, he takes up a child, he puts him, when they ask who's the greatest, he says, truly I say to you, unless you're converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom cash out a child become like a child and you'll be the greatest in the kingdom wait what i could do that <laughs> yes jesus talking to his disciples again in Matthew, mark 10 says but it is when he talks about how the gentiles lorded over each other and flashed their authority over each other but it's not this way among you but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all when he went into if if christ went into a home 
And he saw, you know, the father being the highest figure there. He saw the wife and the children, and he saw the slaves. He says, that's the best position. What? That's the best position. When I see what Christ is saying, this is exactly how he lived. He did not reach for power. He did not gain an army. He did not seek a throne. He did not fight to gain, but instead he fought to give. He loved and he healed. He washed the feet of his disciples and then said, if your master washes your feet and takes the position of the slave, then you're to do that as well. You're to serve the world showing my love so all can know it and receive it. And when you think of Christ, he's the most significant man in the world. He's the most significant man. And he lived such a low life in the eyes of the world. Let God renew your mind, strengthen your calling, and fill you with his spirit. Die to self and the selfishness it celebrates. Give up your life and your will and receive what God has for you. When you seek to gain your life through the rules the culture creates, it's a setup to fail. But in Christ, it's a setup to receive what he has. So I want you to know today, your identity is secure in God. Since your identity is secure in God, that means you don't have to prove it. Just live it. Just live the identity you have in Christ and all the significance you need is there. The security and certainty of God and his word is proven in Christ and the fact that he rose from the dead proves that this is everything you receive is certain and true. Just live out who you are in God with all the confidence of God's love given to you. You know, as Paul was writing this letter, the letter to the Romans, to the church in Rome, he, re, he was revealing to the church the majesty and beauty of the gospel. The gospel is life we can live and the life coaching we need to live. It is direction guiding us along the path of Christ that leads to life. The gospel is the boundary where we need to stay away from the areas that will hinder our intimacy with God. The gospel is our calling as it guides us to how we can love those around us. It is our compulsion as the gospel gives us direction of what we do each day and how we live each hour. It is our hope as we face the trials and difficulties of life. It is our identity as we're called the child of God and brought from the domain of sin into the kingdom of Christ. It is our purpose and meaning as it, show, as it is shown to us what life is all about. It is our contentment as we are truly satisfied with what God and Christ has done. As Paul preached Christ, he offered people a way out of the tyranny of sin and self and the pursuit of meaning that always eluded them. He offered them Christ, hope, and purpose. In Romans 1, 18 through 3.20, Paul diagnosed very accurately the human heart and the human condition. He proved how violent and immoral we are. He showed how we seek purposes, purpose in ways that lead to nothing. Yet in chapters 3 through 21 through 31, Paul gave us the answer to our broken, sinful heart. Christ, through faith, has saved us and given to us what we need. In chapter 4, Paul demonstrated that this faith has always been since, you know, Abraham had faith. This faith is available to you. Have faith in Christ. Faith justifies you. Faith saves you through Christ. Faith in Christ. Chapter 5 is justification. Chapter 6 is sanctification. Chapter 7 is saying, showing that the law, yes, is righteous, but only in Christ can you be made righteous through faith in him. Romans 8 begins with, there is no, con there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. 
In chapter 8, we see what the righteous life looks like, what the righteous life demonstrates, reveals, and produces. We see the righteous life standing against and contrary to the life of sin and the laws of culture and the, false, and the fake pursuit of significance. You see, what is settled forever is your identity because of Christ. Your identity is secure in God, so live it out. Number one, know your identity in Christ directs you. Let's go to Matthew 8, excuse me, Romans 8, verse 12. Romans 8, 12 says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Kelly Green wanted to become someone. Kelly K. Green. So she donned a special made dress, chugged a Coors Light for courage, and ran onto the field at the Super Bowl in February 2020. In her pursuit of fame, Green thought of everything. She selected a seat close to the field, trained with a physical therapist to stick the landing, engaged a lawyer, and bought a Velcro-equipped dress that could strip away. Green wanted to make it to the 50-yard line uh, from her end zone seat. She didn't even make it to the one-yard line. She's now being recruited by the Las Vegas Raiders. Just kidding. (laughs) Arrested almost instantly, she feared that her ambitions of Internet celebrity would only lead to a long, cold night in lockup. After her release, though, a photographer was waiting Reunited with her phone, Green saw her Instagram stats soaring. Her mugshot rocketed around the internet. Followers multiplied, ultimately hundreds and thousands of them. Wow! With many eager to pay for videos and pictures that were often, at the very least, suggestive. Invitations to high-profile parties arrived, too. All of a sudden, I wasn't just the hot girl or the girl that ran on the field. She said, I was a hot Instagram influencer that ran on the field and had worldwide attention. But she also found that fame has a downside. Green said, fame looks so inviting and so glamorous, but I learned quickly that celebrity events give me anxiety. Being around people who are just asking me what I can do and how I can help them. She said, all of these things that Hollywood is and will always be that look so appealing to me just turned me completely off from it. Green moved back to Tennessee. She still has a copy of her mugshot, though. (laughs) She longed for meaning and purpose and found it disappointing. So number one, find contentment. When you understand that your identity is secure in Christ, in God, you see your purpose and meaning. You understand what you've been given. You're content with what you have. Paul wrote in verse 12 that we're not under obligation to the flesh, to the sinful nature. The word obligation means that we're indebted. We owe something. We are not in debt to sin. We are no longer in debt to sin. We do not owe our allegiance, our time, our money, our efforts to sin. I am no longer indebted to sin because of Christ Jesus. I am no longer indebted to the sinful heart, to my deceitful desires, to the lies of Satan. I am no longer owe anything to the law that condemns me. But I'm under a new obligation to follow and serve Christ, my new Lord and my Savior, who has set me free. Because of that, I hear a different voice. 
I follow a different calling. I live a new identity and a new life. I am born again, and I'm no longer under obligation to the old voice, the old man, the old calling. I'm no longer condemned, but set free. When you're under obligation to the flesh, you live according to the flesh, and you're not content. If you're not content, then you're not thankful. As John mentioned earlier in the offering, we're not thankful. Contentment is thankfulness. Contentment is worship. It understands God is in control and he is sovereign. Contentment is right belief, realizing my God is able and my future is in his hands. Contentment sees the future. You know what the future is? God being worshipped. So let's start now. Contentment is worshiping of God. Contentment reminds me I'm no longer under debt to the old sinful nature, but instead live according to the Spirit. The old sinful nature, if I'm going to live according to the flesh, it keeps me in a state of no gratitude and not contentment, and death awaits me. As, as Troy was mentioning, hell awaits me. As I look back at my life, I realized that I had imbibed the cultural and sinful rule of do not be content. Do not be content with your wife. Don't be content with your children, your job, your income, your house, your car, your life itself. Be disappointed in all that. You can do better. You deserve better. You deserve better because you need to find significance in your life. I remember early on in my adult life as a young pastor, always looking and listening to celebrity pastors and wanting to have what they had and saying, boy, I just want that. And then looking at what I had and being disappointed. And then I would be angry at God for not giving me what I wanted and saying, God, I deserve this angry that my life seems so paltry and others seem so successful. I wanted recognition from others. I wanted titles and compliments. In the Christian Missionary Alliance, we have pastor, missionary, district superintendent, dog catcher. No, we don't have dog catcher. President, maybe the president's cabinet. I used to think that I need to become a district superintendent to be significant, to mean that I have moved up in the world and I have meaning. Honestly, though, I really didn't want the job I just wanted the title if I was really honest (laughs) what was I really seeking was attention I'm no different than that woman who ran out on that field on Super Bowl Sunday it was I was in my heart following after the sinful nature's idea of purpose and identity I was not content I was not satisfied therefore I was not thankful I have been convicted, thankfully, of my sins and my attitude, and I have begun to learn the beauty of contentment. I was putting myself under the obligation of the flesh. Now, as I look at my life, at what God has given me, I'm so thankful for my wife, my children, my church family, my identity. I'm grateful I get to do what I do, and I celebrate it every day. I get to do the best thing because I get to do what God has called me to do. I realize that I'm no longer under the obligation of the cultural world of discontentment, but instead of the to the freedom of the spirit and truth of the gospel. I don't have to fight for my image. I don't have to worry about my future. I do still struggle with worry and issues in my life. I'm certainly not perfect, but there's a comfort in God's word that reminds me of who I am and that my identity is secure 
in him. And my God is sovereign. When I lived by the rules of the sinful nature and discontentment, that made me pursue a life that was all about me. I was forgetting about the security, secure identity in Christ. And I praise God that he has opened my eyes to see that. As a result, now, as I listen to the Holy Spirit, now I put to death the deeds of the body, the sinful and selfish desires. I look at my heart more closely. I examine the attitude of my heart. I am happy to be honest, completely honest with myself and to others. What should I try to hide? My hope and significance is found in Christ and my identity is secure in him. I can trust him for he will not let me down. I'm certainly not better than you and you're not better than me. We all struggle with the issues of our heart and together we can overcome them through prayer and encouragement and loving each other. My God will not disappoint me. He will, his love won't fail me. I trust every day I want to affirm God's love is real. He does love me. He does love you. Affirm it every day. Don't let the enemy lie to you and say, you must earn his love. His love is there. Affirm it every day. His faithfulness proves he won't abandon me. I am secure in him. Number two, knowing your identity brings you to the Father. Let's look at verse 14. <clears throat> For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoptions as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. I love that. Beautiful words. Daddy, Father. When you are taken by the sinful life to the Christ life, it removes your fear. It removes discontentment and puts to death the deeds of the flesh. In 1 John we read, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. See, the reaching for power, the pursuit of meaning and the desire for identity is all found in that passage. All that the worldly pursuit leads to is fear, disappointment, and restlessness, because you never reach it. You're like Gilgamesh, never get the, you're like, ah! This will never produce peace, only turmoil. John Thomas has these two wonderful handouts. First one goes with this verse and verses in 1 John. When you replace God, you create an idol. You will seek to find satisfaction in sensual gratification, that's the lust of the flesh. You will seek to find significance in visual longings, that's the lust of the eyes. And you will seek to find self-reliance and earthly stability, which is the pride of life. All these become idols and will put you first. It will lead to fear, disappointment, and restlessness. You'll never have that peace. You will not have peace. So number one, remove all idols. When you re see the peace replaces the turmoil you ever see that movie contact i always like there's an interesting parable in that movie the movie contact they build this machine that the aliens have zipped facts down to the earth i guess somehow and so they built this machine but there was no place for a chair and so they put the chair in there because they thought well you got to have a chair you got to be able to secure yourself so she's sitting in this chair she's flying through this wormhole if you will and she's shaking so violently till she gets out of the chair and it's all peaceful 
<laughs> and it's like, that's what we do, you know? We build this thing, and well, we got to have peace, and God's already given it to us, you know? In the other handout that John gives, he has what are called these x-ray questions. These are pretty good questions. Look at these. What am I preoccupied with? What is the first thing on my mind in the morning and the last thing on my mind at night? Complete this sentence. If only, then I would be happy, fulfilled, and secure. If only I had whatever. What do I want to preserve or avoid? Where do I put my trust? What do I fear? When a certain desire is not met, do I feel frustration, anxiety, resentment, bitterness, anger, or depression? Is there something I desire so much that I'm willing to disappoint or hurt others in order to have it? What am I willing to sin for in order to get it? See, these are questions of addiction, too. And let me tell you, addiction will become your Lord and God. And say, I want you alone and take everything out. And so how could you answer these questions? What would you do? You have to answer these questions and say, what's in my heart? What's going on? Are there idols in my heart? These are difficult but honest questions that get to the heart of what we are worshiping. So let us forsake all the idols and worship the one and only God who is true and who alone is God. In 8.14, we read that if we're led by the Spirit of God, then we are sons of God. As you're led, the idols begin to die. As you're led by God, your identity is known. When you know your identity, you know your status, and you're accepted by God. When you're led by the Spirit, you're certain of who you are. You do not need to try to seek it or keep it. He has it. There is security and freedom in knowing the Holy Spirit. You walk in confidence. You are content. You are thankful. Your salvation in Christ is secure because the Holy Spirit is securing it. In 8.15, we, we see that being led by the Spirit brings us brings us to the Father. As we are led by the Spirit, we see we're adopted into the family of God. We do not live in fear, but in peace. You see, contentment brings peace. You are welcomed into God's family. You are expected to be in the presence of God. God is calling you to his lap. He is calling you to him. Ted King, in his Alliance Life article, Shameless Audacity, quoted Tim Keller saying, the only person who dares to wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a cup of water is a child. I love that quote. The king's child for sure. You are welcome to go to God. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to sit on his lap. He wants you to hug him and hold him and tell him everything you're going through. Because he's the father. In Hebrews, we read this, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. God is expecting you to come to him because you are his child to come to him. You can draw near to him with confidence. As a member of the family, we cry out, Abba, Father, this is a term of endearment. Who else can you call daddy? We get to call him daddy. In the, in, in the Bible, God revealed himself in three major ways, I believe. He was known as El Shaddai to Abraham. He was known as Jehovah or Yahweh to uh, Moses and the nation of Israel. But today we know him as Father, Daddy. Typically, I don't go around calling people terms of endearment. You know, hey, John, hey. And I, say, I wouldn't, like, 
say sweetheart to him because he'd be like, there's a line here, don't cross it. <laughs> you know, you don't do that. Those are reserved for those special relationships. But I get to call God daddy. And in the Father's arms, there's no fear, no uncertainty, no turmoil. There's peace, there's calmness, there's quiet. There's purpose, there's calling and certainty. Your identity is known. His love is real. As you crawl up into your Father's lap, know that your identity is secure. Number three, knowing your identity produces confidence. Let's look at verse 16, 17. Great verses here. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if the children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Take that verse 17. Type it out. Put it up. Put it on your phone. Put it, whatever, whatever you read. Put it up. Every day read that verse. And be overcome and overwhelmed by what that verse says. You know, Matthew Perry is an actor well-known for the character Chandler on the TV sitcom, Friends. He wrote a book, and one of his quotes is this, I think you actually have to have all your dreams come true to realize they are the wrong dreams. <laughs> That's a pretty cool quote. <laughs> to have all my dreams come true, realize, oh, these are wrong dreams. <laughs> They're wrong dreams because they typically begin with wrong motives and with deceitful desires. The foundation of the dream is wrong, therefore the dream is wrong. God did not design you to live selfishly, but righteously. Not sinfully, but holy. Not full of self, but full of Christ. To be filled with the Spirit and Father bound. When you come to Christ and bow before and repenting of your sins, He forgives you, He saves you, He justifies you, He sanctifies you, and one day will glorify you. You do not need to worry about identity, direction, calling or purpose they're settled and found in christ god then gives you the holy spirit the holy spirit is the power to live out the identity god has given you number one the holy spirit is your guarantee verse 16 he's your guarantee paul in this letter to the ephesians wrote in him you also after listening to the message of the truth the gospel your salvation having also believed you were sealed in him with the holy spirit of promise who's given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. He has sealed you. He has marked you. He says, you belong to me. I give you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. God has given the Holy Spirit to prove to you that you belong to him. You are God's own possession. By sending the Spirit, the Spirit te will testify that you belong to God. This is the confidence you can have. This is the certainty you can live with. This is the identity that you have. You get to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, honoring and blessing others and honoring God. Number two, the Holy Spirit raises you up. When the Holy Spirit testifies on your behalf, he shows that you are a member of God's family. What does that mean? You're heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. That just blows my mind. That means whatever Christ has, you have. Catch that? Whatever Christ has, you have. <laughs> God sees you as he sees Christ because Christ lives in you. What does Christ have? In John 1, read this. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. I want to draw your attention to that part where it says, in the Father's bosom. 
in the bosom of the Father. This is what Christ has, an intimate, deep relationship with the Father. You know, when you read co-heirs of Christ, that means we get to have the same relationship that the Father has with the Son. Now, I don't know about you, but that's just like, what? I get to have the same relationship with the Father as Christ does? In John chapter 14, it says, In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. In Matthew, Jesus said, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. The Son wants you to know the Father, and if Christ is living in you, how can you not know the Father as the Son knows the Father? It's there. In Christ's prayer in John 17 says that they may be all, they all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The co-heir of Christ allows me to know the Father as the Son knows the Father. He allows you to know the Father as he knows the Father. I don't know, that just, can you capture that? Or my brain can't even wrap itself around that idea to have that intimate relationship with the Father as Christ, because Christ lives in me. He invites you to know that. Together, as we live out the reality of this, we see God's love overcome hard hearts, culturally accepted immorality, and difficult conflicts. We will accomplish the will of God. We will see life change. We will see people saved. Trusting God for the impossible and having audacious faith to dare God to do things that only he can do. We will bring life to those around us because his love is beaming. Know your identity is secure in God and live it. Let's pray. Father God, I can't thank you enough. I can't praise you enough. I don't have enough hours. I don't have a long enough life to praise you. I thank you that you give me eternal life, a life in which I can praise you and thank you. I thank you for what you've given me. I thank you for my life, my family, my church family. I praise you that you're my God. And I ask you, Lord, that you would bless each person to know you deeply and to know the Father as you know the Father.